I'm Mary Zimmerman, and this is 101 Stage Adaptations. Welcome to 101 Stage Adaptations. I'm your host, Melissa Schmitz. I'm a theater artist and arts administrator, and I wrote my first stage adaptation when I was 22. Now I'm interviewing playwrights about their own adaptations, their creative process, and how they make it all work. She is here. I can hardly believe it. Today, I finally get to chat with one of my theater heroes. And I say finally because I once had a temp job at Northwestern University in the theater department. At the same time, she was on sabbatical. So that was very sad that we didn't have any interaction then. Um, But she's here today. And we're going to talk about one of the best plays I have ever seen, which is her adaptation of The Steadfast Tin Soldier by Hans Christian Andersen. And I am very serious when I say that it ranks in the top three theater experiences of my entire life. Anybody who knows me knows that I am very serious when I talk about theater and what I like and what I don't like. Um, And lucky for us, it's playing at Looking Glass Theater in Chicago right now. So if you are in Chicago, you need to run to Looking Glass to see it and bring the whole family. It's beautiful. It's short. It's amazing. And we're going to talk to Mary about it. Mary Zimmerman is a playwright and director of theater and opera based in Chicago. She is the 1998 recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, the 2002 Tony Award and Obie for Best Director, and many Chicago Joseph Jefferson Awards, including Best Production and Best Director. She is a member of Looking Glass Theater Company in Chicago, an artistic associate of the Goodman Theater, and the Jaharis Family Foundation Endowed Chair of Performance Studies at Northwestern University. She specializes in the adaptation of classical texts for the stage. Works that she has adapted and directed include The Steadfast Tin Soldier, Treasure Island, The Jungle Book, The White Snake, The Notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci, Arabian Nights, Metamorphoses, The Secret in the Wings, an opera with Philip Glass called Galileo Galilei, and many others. Her productions have appeared at the Goodman and Looking Glass Theaters in Chicago, The Circle in the Square, Manhattan Theater Club, Second Stage, and the Brooklyn Academy of Music in New York, Seattle Rep, Berkeley Rep, the McCarter and Huntington Theaters, the Shakespeare Theater of D.C., the Old Globe of San Diego, and many other stages nationally and internationally. Her plays, particularly Metamorphoses, The Secret in the Wings, and The Odyssey are produced over 100 times each year around the world in universities, high schools, and other amateur and professional venues. She has directed many productions at the Metropolitan Opera, including Eurydice, a new opera based on Sarah Rule's play, and all of which have been broadcast live worldwide. Please welcome to the show the incomparable Mary Zimmerman. Hi, Mary. Hi, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm so excited you're here. So uh, we like to start at the beginning in this podcast. And so I ask you, Mary Zimmerman, what is your first theater memory? You know, I have a sort of, this is a true story from childhood, and I don't think it was my very, very first, but it was almost. Um, I think my very first, we lived in England when I was five and six years old. My parents were professors and were on sabbatical there. And um, I do think I, I'm, it, it's told that I, we were taken to a production of um, Cyrano de Bergerac in Hyde Park and that I, you know, wept when it was over because it was over, even though it was, you know, four hours long or whatever. But, but, but I don't <laughs> myself have memory of that. What I do have memory of, and this is a true story and if anyone's ever listened to an interview with me, they've probably heard heard me tell it, but it is true. 
Um, we lived in a suburb of London and right behind our house was a woods called, in this very British name, the Little Woods. Down the street was the Big Woods. And um, I used to wander around in there after school. It was a different time. So I was only five or six years old, but I wandered around in there by myself. And there was a clearing in the middle of the woods that unbeknownst to me every year, there was a production of Midsummer Night's Dream. And I actually came upon rehearsal and it was ill met by moonlight proud Titania between Titania and Oberon and the changeling boy. And they had their lines and then they separated and Oberon ran around in a circle a bunch of times. And there was like a little bit of music. I, in my mind's eye, it's on a gramophone, but I don't know that that's possible, but like a little plugged in thing. Um, and they ran around in a circle a bunch of times and all of a sudden the guy playing Oberon stopped and started laughing and everyone was laughing. He said, how, how many times do I go around? And everyone was laughing and laughing. And that was so striking to me. I, some people think when I tell the story that I thought I was seeing fairies, I, I knew absolutely. I, I was not, I, I absolutely knew what was going on, but what I was seeing was adults playing in a way I'd never seen in my life, like playing like children, really. Yeah. And yet there was a sort of seriousness to it, too, or concentration or organization to it that child's play maybe doesn't always have. Um, but it was mostly their kind of riotous laughing and everyone cracking up and everything stopping while everyone laughed. That was so, I think, really attractive to me. Mm. And... Um, I went and apparently got my sister, but then the director chased us off, which I now today cannot believe that some, you know, that he didn't want us watching. It's very hard to believe that. But, and then we did go see the production, which was at night, which I have very, very little memory of. I have memory of the donkey maybe. Mm -hmm. And I think I didn't fall into the production in the same way that I did seeing that, seeing that rehearsal, but that, but that is, we also went to what's called the Christmas pageant in London, which is a kind of campy, um, in this case, campy retelling of Cinderella. And I remember the ugly sisters who were played by men had these costumes that lit up with Christmas lights. And I was very entranced by that and have since stolen it, I believe. I've had lights, lots of lights and skirts since then. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. So... So from that, um, how did you know that theater was the right path for you, even though you've, you've previously talked about how you didn't feel like acting was maybe it? How did you know that the theater yeah. was still the thing? I, you know, I didn't ever think I was really going to be a professional theater until, you know, my late 20s, maybe. It just seemed an impossible dream. And I think this is very true of a lot of people that what I, the part of theater that I saw that everyone sees is the actors on stage. And so that's what I did. And I, I was in all the community theater plays that were for kids. And I was in all the school plays and all of that. But I never for a second thought that I could actually have a life in the theater. It just seemed too impossible. And you know, I even, I, I sort of feel also that like when I kind of said I wanted to, that there was a kind of reaction because I wasn't beautiful, which I sort of knew, you know, I kind of knew that was part of it. And I didn't understand that 
that there's this part behind the scenes. You know, I didn't, I didn't understand that. Even though I'd seen that rehearsal, it just didn't mean anything to me. Um, and so, you know, when I went to school, I went to Northwestern in, in Comp Lit, but I transferred literally during orientation week to theater. I just felt like I couldn't not just do it for another four years and then forget about it. And that's kind of what happened. <laughs> and then I was a temporary secretary in Chicago for a couple of years, planning to go back to school because I, I really love school. Um, I went back in a department called performance studies, but then I started making performances in performance studies and I took performance art class and um, I started making more and more elaborate performances that at a certain point it became easier to not be in them because that was the part that I didn't actually love being on stage. I, I was a nervous performer, a nervous kid performer, and I don't know that I was I don't know if I was any good. I was certainly passionate about it, but, you know, I was nervous and I knew that what I loved was rehearsal and that I didn't like putting on makeup and putting on uncomfortable clothes and putting on wigs and stuff like a lot. Most true actors just adore all of that. And I didn't. I loved rehearsal, but I still didn't get it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I didn't get it until I started doing these sort of performance art pieces longer and longer. And then I took an adaptation class from the great Frank Galati, who was a mentor of mine. And, um, you know, at some point I sort of combined the poetic, allegorical, symbolic, nonverbal aspects of the sort of performance art I was doing with a kind of high narrative impulse, you know, the literary, um, strain that's in my in what I do obviously those things kind of started to intertwine at a certain point so I really started you know figuring it out a little bit in in school and doing little shows and presentations at school wow and then if you want me to keep on rambling on I produced myself which whenever I'm asked what is your advice um it's two words produce yourself um I I rented a space from, as it happens, the nascent, incipient uh, Looking Glass Theater Company, who had all just graduated from Northwestern. I'm about four years older than most of them. And that's how we really got to know each other. I knew them a little bit at school because I was a graduate student, but it was renting their space. And I, you know, I ran everything myself and I took the photos and, you know, I just did everything. And that first production was a version of Notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci. That's the first mm. thing I did off campus. And I, you know, my dad had given me a little money in account when I was born, a stock account, and it was worth $800. And I called him and asked him to cash that in to produce it. And he said, well, you know, you can borrow against it. It's called a margin account. So I did mm -hmm. that. And then it pays itself back through interest. That only paid itself back about 15 years ago <laughs> because it was just a few dollars a year. <laughs> and it finally wow. did. Yeah. So that's the long and short maybe the too long of it. I love it. Um, so I've heard that you don't feel like you've made it in the theater, despite winning the Tony and the Genius Grant and, and all these other awards. Do you still feel this way? Well, I've made it to my own satisfaction for sure. Okay. And I think I probably said that a few years ago. I had a, a, a lot of trouble sort of believing that I had a life in the theater, even when I had it. And on my passport, it still says, it says professor. It doesn't say theater director. Um, I, 
I definitely, I am definitely content and satisfied with the level of opportunity I have and how much I work. Um, I'm, I'm definitely very satisfied with that. I do think if I were to um, find something that I might not feel as fully realized is I'm not on the lists for someone to direct a new play like in New York. I'm just not mm. on those lists. I think people don't think of me as as doing that. And that's just fine because it's mostly not what I do. <laughs> you know, it's mostly not. But I do know how to read a play and I do know how to direct a scene. It's just that the other playwrights I've ever done are 95% it's just been Shakespeare, you know? Mm. I I'm just not asked to do those to do those new things. So that's and I when I it's not so much a it's just that I feel like I might learn something. You know what I mean? It's not so much that it's like a totally unrealized desire or whatever. And again, yeah. I can't stress enough. I'm, I'm busy enough and, and I have, you know, so much opportunity because I'm affiliated with two great theaters. I'm part of the organization of two great theaters, Looking Glass and The Goodman, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so there is a there, there eventually, like, cause we're like people who are striving are like, I just want to get there. So you feel like there is a there or well, is, there, there, is it nebulous? Uh, there for me has always been, and this may sound insincere, it's, but it's not, it's the doing the thing itself. And I always felt like I'll just do this one more show and then I'll go be back, back to being a temporary secretary and a word processor. Like, I, I was just raised by super humble people and had super humble expectations or no expectations at all, actually. And um, I never, my goals, and I did write out goals every year, but they were never goals that had to do with largeness uh, or venue or they were, I want to do, um, you know, this text, I want to adapt this really well. I want to do a project I haven't thought of yet. And I didn't care where they were or anything like that. Like, I just never, I never, ever thought, I, I never had as a goal a Broadway show. You know, that wasn't, it just wasn't in my, it just, you know, theater is so local yeah. and I'm very happy. I don't think that the audiences in a different city are better <laughs> than the or somehow more, anything um than the audiences I, ha I have you know what I mean and theaters only fit so many people so I never had that more more bigger bigger thing I just didn't I just didn't I just I was very 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 obsessed with these texts which meant everything to me in childhood to the point where I wanted to manifest them and live in them and know them in that intimate, intimate way that you do when you adapt a work of literature for the stage. It's a way of knowing. It's a way of figuring out your own relationship to that text, what you value in it, what you don't like in it so much, what you downplay, what you overemphasize, tells you things about your own tastes and who you are and so forth. So honestly, um, I feel like definitely you've made it if you're just extremely happy in rehearsal and have the opportunity to be in rehearsal. I mean, this, you know, work is the most, um, I don't want to use the word privilege because it's a little bit overused and I don't mean it in quite that way. We're just lucky, um, to continue playing into 
adulthood. It reminds me, I grew up in the Midwest and we played kickball in this, or I don't know what it was, but sort of a outdoor, you hide and kick a ball. <laughs> anyway, and we would always be playing after dark. And after it got dark, the parents would be leaning out of their screen doors saying, you know, calling us in, but we wouldn't come in. And I feel until finally at last we did. And I feel like we in the theater are just not coming in after dark. We're not growing up in a certain way, adamantly refusing. Um, we still believe in, in pretend and playing. It's the same word, a play and playing. It's the same word. So to be able to just be in rooms and making something collaboratively with like really charming, <laughs> professional grade, charming, funny people is, you know, it's amazingly enough, you know? Yeah. I love it. Let's talk about the steadfast tin soldier. Sure. Um, tell us what the story is about and how you decided that this was the Christmas show you were going to create. It's a brief little story. Um, they say it is the only story of Hans Christian Andersen's, which is original to him, because like the Grimm's brothers, he collected tales. These were, you know, existent tales that, you know, mothers told their children at bedtime, oral tales that, you know, kind of got inscribed and set down by certain people. Um, but they say that Steadfast in Soldier, he actually there's no antecedent to it. He, he, he perhaps made it up. And in fact, at his house in Copenhagen, I want to say, but I'm not positive. Um, the statue that's there that marks it as his house is the, is the tin soldier. So the tin soldier, for whatever reason was, you know, mal manufactured and only has one leg. And, um, the little story is just about his adventures at, the ball that all the toys have at night when the children are asleep. You know, I think Toy Story I actually borrowed from it a lot. I've never seen Toy Story, but things I hear about it. Um, then a wicked Jack in the Box or Goblin um, throws him out the window because he's jealous of the Tin Soldier's relationship to a paper doll ballerina. And then he um, ends up, you know, put into a little boat by some little newspaper boys. And then he ends up because it rains down in the sewers and a rat sort of uh, demands his passport, which he doesn't have. And he's a very helpless sort of figure, you know, because he can't, he can't run away. And then he's swallowed by a fish. And then the fish is brought lo and behold to the dinner table at the home where he's from. So he's returned, but an evil little boy who lives in the household throws him into the oven and the paper ballerina gets thrown in there by a, a spoiler alert. <laughs> All of this is by the goblin. Um, and they actually burn up, but they meld into a heart um, made of tin with kind of the remnants of the ballerina. She says she has a spangle on her, like an ornament also on the heart. Um, and that's, that's it. Um, there's a lot of danger and he doesn't necessarily overcome it. It's like a mini epic. It's like a mini odyssey complete with sort of monsters. It's not that much different from my regular work. It's an epic that's compressed into mini, like little miniature form. Um, but I kind of was looking for something to, to be a holiday show for, for looking glass. And it's not 
really directly a Christmas story, except that the tin soldiers are present. I, I don't even know for sure if the original story says that, but you, you can imagine them as a Christmas present. Um, and then the next thing, which, you know, you haven't mentioned is, or did you mention, you know, it's an odd thing to be talking about for in an adaptation discussion because there's no language in the play. There's no speaking. There's no script for the show. There's a score because we have four musicians who play all the time. I tell people more than anything, it resembles a a silent movie or like one of the non-speaking Warner brothers cartoons where there's just, there's always music and effects, sound effects, but there's, it's all visual. And the way I came to that, I should have warned you, you should just like stop because <laughs> I can just go drop a hat and I just go. It's a later um, question. So it relates. Yeah. But, um, you know, it has very little dialogue in it. And often when you're looking at, at something, is this suitable to adapt? Things that seem obvious, although it may not be true, but seem obvious good candidates for adaptations are things that are told in dialogue that, that that are already in dramatic the dramatic mode of speaking of people speaking to each other without a lot of interior or out of a lot of narration that's critical you know it's 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 already in scenes as it were this has like two spoken lines in it so that seemed to be a big problem like okay how do i do the narrative voice i don't really want a narrator it would sort of all be narrated but i don't want to have to make up huge scenes of dialogue that don't exist, you know, in order to get the story told, it didn't seem right. And what attracted me to it, aside from, I just love the sort of moral of be steadfast. He's always courageous. He's always, he doesn't lose his cool. He just accepts the circumstances and deals with them and keeps going. Um, which I think is a really good Uh, message for the for the moment you know he just puts I mean he can't put one foot in front of the other but if he could he's sort of putting one foot in front of the other um but what attracted me were you know him on a little paper boat and the big rat in the sewer and the goblin and the -the jack-in-the-box and the ball and you know all the these visual things and I remember when I had the thought like what if they just don't talk like I try and do it completely visually. And that was, you know, sometimes you can tell a good idea because it creates a certain excitement in you. Like there's a certain very excited feeling when you have that idea. And I, and I had that feeling. And then I remember sort of combing through it and thinking like, could I do this visually without words? Could I do this? Could I do that? And then in the end, you know, there, there were a couple lines, um, one of narration and one that's spoken that I just love so much that I, I did find a way to get them in the show, though they're not spoken. They're sort of spelled out. They're graphically represented. Um, so, yeah, and it was, um, you know, that's the key to the whole thing, to the whole thing is that they don't. <laughs> it's this visual thing. You know, every night in the audience, we have non-English speakers. And I'm very proud of that, that it's it's 100% accessible. You don't have to speak English at all. And very old people really like it. And very young people really like it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's so beautiful. Um, and I want to encourage anybody who's going to go early to the show because you have an advent calendar countdown to curtain 
Um, which is something I I really, really enjoyed. Once I realized what was happening, you know, as I was sitting there, I was like, oh, when, when's it going to happen next? How's this, how's this working? Um, So where did this idea come from? You know, I'd always kind of wanted to get to do a Christmas carol. I never will. And I don't need to, there are millions of great Christmas carols, but I somehow had noticed at some moment, I loved advent calendars as a child. I think all children just love that same yeah it's like a snowy scene with some glitter on it often and just getting to open the little tiny door and what's going to be behind it plus you're counting down to the great occasion of Christmas um you know so I just love that and at some moment I realized I think I was thinking about how would I do Christmas Carol. I was I was sort of noticed that like the house is open for about 25 minutes right and advent calendars usually have 20, you know, one to 25. And, um, and I just, you know, I just thought like the countdown would be a great thing to mimic. So we have this, it's, you know, we refer to it as an act curtain, but it's, it's stiff, you know, and it has um, 25 doors in it, little doors in it. And some of them are already open when the audience comes in, but then this variety of sort of interestingly dressed little creatures there's a little chime hits and they come out now at first, cause we start at the minute we open the house. So very few people even see the first one. And we start with about 10 of them open or nine of them open anyway. And we do it every two minutes and then it starts compressing so that there's a kind of acceleration. And I remember being really terrified. I did not want audiences to think, Oh, we have to sit silently and pay complete attention to this. I wanted them to keep chitter chattering and talking then like ding, and then like pay attention for a moment, but go back. And generally it does work. It does work that way. People understand that like, it's not interesting enough to just be, you know, staring, staring at it, but every now and then something interesting is going to happen for a few moments. And then, you know, the final door, of course, sort of at the bottom of the, of the wall, and when it opens, we see sort of through onto the stage and we see the little, it's the little tin soldier standing there and then the walls part and then we're, and then the, the orchestra sort of strikes up and we're, and we're in it. But it's that coincidence of it being, you know, generally half an hour, 25 minutes at a house that you're, that you are counting down and that number that you're counting down in a Christmas calendar. So. For sure. And I did have all of those feelings of like, Ooh, what what door are they going to open? What's going to be in that door? And then it's like, what like what's next? And what and, you know? And then it's the final one, and it's like, oh, of course, of course, it's the Tin Soldier there. And then yeah. it's just really beautifully done. And you know, Melissa, each of the little squares, I remember with Todd Rosenthal, you know, determining what was going to be in them. And we definitely said, oh, things from the show, but the show at that point didn't exist, and you know, wasn't it hadn't been rehearsed. And then it turns out that the things we picked are uncannily important in the show. Mm. And at towards the end of the show, we kind of need to do an in one scene because things are changing behind that wall. So we close the wall and we watch all the doors being closed. And as, as the little, you know, gnome or elf figure um, is closing those doors, we kind of see that we saw all of those objects in the show, but now they have meaning you know, before they were pictures, but now they actually refer to events or parts of the story. And indeed, you know, the um, one little door had flames 
And we ended up using that for the goblin to sort of throw the paper ball, little tiny paper ballerina into that door and shut it. Very recently, we changed that picture to a picture of the stove itself. I thought the storytelling would be better that way. But it was pure coincidence when the time came that there that we did have that right towards the bottom where the goblin could reach it. We had those flames behind a door. Realizing all of this that I'm describing, if you haven't seen it, might not make any sense at all. But, you know, the main point is just that, like, those pictures are sweet and pretty when we first encounter them. But at the end of the show, they have meaning. And it's an interesting thing to me. Yeah, yeah. So the the performance is one hour long, not counting the the pre-show advent calendar bit. Were you intentional intentional about a runtime, or were you just going to make it as long as it needed to be? You know, I I thought it'd be an hour ten, an hour fifteen, and for the first and only time that this will ever happen in my life. I was extremely anxious that it wasn't long enough. And I was constantly asking the stage manager when we'd figure out a scene, how long was that? How long was that? And adding it up and being horrified that it wasn't adding up to very much. And in fact, we have this a bit of a surprise, a song at curtain call, which I'd always intended, but it's only the song that takes it over an hour. Mm. <laughs> so it's a scant hour, but it's very full. And, you know, for little kids, that's that's long you know that's plenty that's plenty long i think it's i think it's it's worth the money and it, you get a full evening but it is and it's fun because you can go out to eat after the show if you want easily um so i like it but i i did actually think it was going to be longer and was constantly worried because you know the way i work i don't write a script in advance in all my adaptations and I'm constantly eyeing how much, how much, how much have we got? And the always, except for this show, it's, it's too much. It's too long. It's going to be too long. I, I, we're still in act one, you know, I'm not even, and in this, the fear was it wasn't long enough. <laughs> that's, that's funny, but you're right. You know? It is, it is full. I will, I will attest to that, that it's, it's a full experience. And, and I cried twice. <laughs> I cried twice in an hour at the beginning yeah. and at the end for different reasons, yeah. but mostly because it's so beautiful. Um, so yeah, so it's, and, and when I was there, there were lots of young children in the audience. So, so it's, it's good for young kids. And like you said, it's an hour. So it's, it, that's yeah. a, that's a great timeline for them. Um, but also for the adults that go, it's, it's a full experience. But, you know, I want to mention that my cast it's not children and it's not even young adults or young, you know, in their twenties and thirties actors, those actors are in their fifties and forties. And something about that moves me really strongly, a that they're bringing their talents to that, but it, it kind of adds gravitas to the whole thing. And I think it's also so honoring of a childhood narrative and, childhood imagination and a childhood story to have these really really mature artists doing it it adds it adds a lot i think it would be different if it was you know 26 year olds or whatever or you know I, it just it makes a difference it really does yeah yeah everybody is really amazing in the show mm -hmm. um and because this is about a child's toy you play a lot with size and scale in yeah. in the visuals um how did you decide to do this in the first place? And how did you decide which scene was going to get what kind of scale? 
Well, you know, I, I knew I had to do something in order to tell the story that, that went from large to small and small to large all the time. So the first iteration of the Tin Soldier, he's a prop and he's about 18 inches big. And so the, the toddler who's playing with him is huge. And there's like a little bit of a Christmas tree branch that's sort of oversized that's showing from the proscenium and hanging down. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it's something you decide in advance. You figure out as you go along. I did, however, because there was not only no script, which there never is for my designers when we start, but there was, there's, there's a, there's just this little, this little text, which I knew we were going to do, you know, somewhat differently. In any case, um, I, I made drawings, which I have not always done. I made kind of some storyboardy drawings. And um, apparently my set designer, Todd Rosenthal, shows this to his class a lot. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I drew at one point, uh, the tin soldier is being played by an actor and he's swallowed by a giant fish. Um, and then the fish reduces in scale twice. Um, but but I, I drew all that. I drew this giant fish coming down from above and swallowing him. And then there's like a somewhat giant fish, like a size of a, in real life of a big tuna, I suppose, um, swimming around for a while. And then when he's served on the dinner table, of course, he's a, a normal size, like a salmon. Um, but and then the tin soldier inside him is just back down to a little six inch prop because we have like these little six inch or eight inch ones and 18 inch and then the full size. And that was just um the only way to do it, I felt like. Like sometimes you have to, I guess, see him in long shot, you know, falling from the window um, or sailing on a boat on the ocean. And sometimes you're seeing him in close up. And so he's he's big. And it's a world of small objects in encounter with the life size world or in encounter with each other. So it just keeps shifting. That seemed easy. You know, that seemed like a, a fairly obvious thing to do, to keep changing the, the scale of it that way. But it is kind of delightful. Oh, and we get to see the toddler later and he's actual child size. He's the size of a like two and a half year old. Um, that's my favorite puppet in the show probably is that little. <laughs> yes, it's very, especially when, uh, when he's um, bothering the orchestra. <laughs> yes, he bothers the orchestra. He's looking all the time for his toy. Um, he has a very vexed relationship with his older brother and with his nursemaid. Um, you know, all, all of that is all sort of discovered. I mean, there's whole scenes in the show that aren't in the story, partly because, um, you know, as we went along, the scenes just weren't taking as long to accomplish as I, as I thought they were going to. So right. there's some added little things in it. Yeah, it's so fun. Um, getting back to the dialogue-lessness of the show, yeah. um, you had previously revealed that making this a visual-only show was a scary idea. And so my question is, do you normally run toward or away from scary ideas? <laughs> and you know, then, toward. I mean, absolutely toward. I'm sorry I interrupted. Finish your question. Yeah. Then, then the second part of that is, um, was there a moment where it really clicked that this was the right artistic choice for this piece? I mean, I, I do think it clicked right away. It just felt right. It solved all my all my worries. All of a sudden, it solved all my worries. And then when I started getting scraps of music from my composer, Andre Plus, you know, before we began rehearsal, we did have some little scraps. I just, you know, 
Uh, and when I was picking out, um, you know, the, the design process, even though the way I work is it all happens in rehearsal or in the hours in between rehearsal, you know, I write an hour, I write a day ahead of my performers. Um, but in any case, design is speculative in a way, like there's not a script, but I, and so I was picking out fabrics with my costume designer and just the craziness of the fabrics. We were, we were so maximalist about it. You know, I knew, I just knew how delightful it was. And when I saw costume fittings coming in and we rehearsed in our little building in a room across from the theater and on every break when they were loading in, I would go watch it come in and seeing that it has a proscenium in this old fashioned way. It paints sort of scenes from the, from the story and seeing that come in was just so delightful. So I, I knew it was right, but you know, I have always done kind of scary ideas. You know, I've done site specific doing a show in a pool of water Um Directing opera when I didn't know what I was doing when I first started was intensely scary. Um, I've so I've set I have set some challenge you know deliberate like ch challenges for myself or even the size and complexity of the texts you know that I've done like the Odyssey or Journey to the West or the Notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci. That's another sort of scary one because it's not. It's not a narrative, you know, it's, it's not a narrative and um, finding, making a structure for that or making that interesting. It's comprised entirely of, you know, scattered writings from Leonardo's various papers and, and notebooks. So I think I always like, not every show, but a lot of my shows have had some central challenge to them like that. And I, I like that. Plus the challenge of going in without writing a script to begin with is <laughs> that's the big one. <laughs> Although I've gotten so used to that, that it doesn't scare me that much, you know? Very good. Um, so would you say that, that while you're, you have sort of a template of, of a story from, from an adaptation um, that this, that your work is like semi-devised you know, it's, it's, it's complex to use that term. And I, at first I sort of embraced it, but now I think I sort of reject it. It really is, there is a, there is a backing text, right? There's a source text. And I think of devised work as being entirely generated in the room and, and not having a, a text. It's, it's, it's created in the room and so forth that mine is, is based on something. So I go in without a script, but I do have the actual source text, which, you know, often it's too large for my designers or the cast to have entirely read, but sometimes not. And I don't, you know, it's egotistic of me to sort of insist on this clarification, but I, but I sort of do. I think some people think that I show up at rehearsal and we improvise and then I write down what people said. That is the opposite of the truth. I write a scene at a time the night before. That's what I meant when I said I'm a day ahead of the actors, not a day behind. So I come home from rehearsal and I have to come up with something for the next day. And sometimes it's chronologically the next scene in the story, but sometimes I'm stuck and I don't know how to do that. So I skip ahead or whatever. Sometimes I don't bring in anything and we're stuck just repeating but at first rehearsals are very brief. They might only be an hour and a half or two hours. 
Um, and then the in-between time I'm using to come up with the next step, the next thing. Um, and then as we go along, the proportions sort of shift. We're in long rehearsal and I have short time in between, but I also have less time, less script to, to write. That is not to say that I'm not absolutely inspired by 100% by who's in the cast. Um, and just who they are as people and what their talents are. So if I have someone who can sing, I'll make sure to get a song in there. Someone can tumble or whatever, I try and get that in there. Someone's really funny at certain kinds of physical things, I'll make sure I get that in there. So I'm tailoring it to them. Um, and it's utterly dependent on who they are. But I guess I'd say they're not really the primary agent of the text. You know, that's me and the, the original text itself. But it's definitely cut to the performers I have. So much so that when I was younger, I didn't think my shows could be done by anyone else. And for a long time, you know, I just didn't, they weren't published. And I didn't, I didn't, I was so convinced that this was so specific to these performers, these particular performers in the original cast, that I wouldn't repeat it without them. And I wouldn't let it be done without them, et cetera, et cetera. It was a surprise to me that the scripts are somewhat transferable, <laughs> you know, they're done by high schools and colleges all the time. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was just so, con that, I'm trying, I'm saying that to just show that my love and appreciation and faith in the performers and their role in the thing I made, I do not underappreciate that, but they aren't verbally improvising. And then I write it down. It's not that I'm just like a playwright or a regular adapter except that the time frame in which I am doing my script sits on top of the time frame that I'm rehearsing the performance. That's, that's how I think of it. Yeah. Very good. Um, so when you're in the rehearsal room, how, how, like, what is the secret to your genius? How do you make everything so visually beautiful? Like if there's all these details and it's like, it's sort of like choreography, what, like, how do you do it? I mean, well, thank you for the compliment. I, I don't know that I always do it, but I, you know, I think, I think of theater. Um, I'm the, the, I, I've said sometimes that the, the, the theater that I'm most interested in making is not, they're not radio plays. They couldn't be on the radio. There's a lot of phenomenal drama, Shakespeare included, that could be on the radio and you could imagine what is around it um, just as well, you know, just in your head as seeing it in the theater where the scenery is 100% just sort of naturally supporting the text. But I like theatrical elements that are, that are the text and that, that are adding to the text and that's the images that, that contain metaphor and that are telling the story. And even when I've done like Shakespeare or anyone or other things, I often have sections where we're not doing the text and there's like a little, you know, sort of dumb show or some, something's happening purely visually. And, you know, part of my inspiration for Steadfast is that those are always my favorite parts of shows like transitions. I always pay a lot of attention to transitions where we're relieved of the burden of attending to this text and the text filling our head and our head is emptier and we're more open to sort of this visual world that's coming in. And I always also loved dances, watching dance as a kid. 
And I love design so much. I guess I'm just visually oriented. And I feel like if you're in the theater, you should exploit theatricality, which to me is the way in which lights and movement and costumes and scenery, all of these elements that, you know, you don't have on the radio and that have particular restraints on them that film doesn't have. I mean, film is hyper expensive and difficult to do, but, you know, film for the most part, you know, it hides its means of production. If there's the shadow of a boom mic or someone messes up, you know, it's, you have to redo that. It's, it's illusory. So you're looking at like reality, 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 the theater taking place in one room, but telling stories that are going all over the place, you know, into the air and under the sea and wherever stories go, you know, you have to use visual metaphor, like this blue cloth will be the ocean, this chair will be the castle, this, you know, and audiences just delight in that. Um, but, you know, winner must be present to collect prize in, in theater. Like you have to be there to see what's going on on the stage. And I'd say Notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci is the show of mine that's most emphatically that way, because often what's happening visually and physically is sometimes contradicting the text. It's counter illustrating the text. Sometimes it's clarifying it and amplifying it, but sometimes it's saying something additional. So I want all of those elements to be speaking, you know, all the time. I want design to be, I have a, I have a, a motto um, for myself in making a show, which is always be blossoming always be giving for it, always be giving, always be giving something. Even if the something is a dramatic moment, you know, and that's it. But if it's not a super dramatic moment, then there's something visual going on. There's something orally going on, something that holds us and creates this imaginative world, you know? Mm. So I am detail oriented in terms of clothing and lighting and movement and music and all of that. But those are just, that's just the toolbox. I just want to use the toolbox to its maximum, maximum capability, you know, For to sure. inspire, to make, to collaborate with the audience in completing the image, you know, to the, the theater has to join hands with the audience to complete. We need their belief and their cooperation unlike film, which just really can do it all for you and replaces your own imagination. You know, the theater demands that you draw on your own experience of the world to understand what you're seeing and fill out the image yourself, you know? Yeah. And how do you know when these moments that you're creating are done versus they still are reaching for something or needing something more? I mean, you know, you feel it, but you're right. Sometimes you do go a step too far and and you go, we don't need that. And you pull it, you definitely pull it back. Um, I don't know. It causes emotion in you. It causes a feeling of completeness. Mm. It just, um, it does. And the, the little bit of that is experience, but it's also just attending to how you feel when you look at it and trusting it. I, I definitely have had the experience of like, you know, we don't have all of this in rehearsal. And I remember this was in Jungle Book. There was a certain moment 
And I knew at that moment how good it was going to be, but I was constantly like narrating it in the rehearsal room. And I knew no one believed me. I knew that the actors who hadn't worked with me before did not believe me. And then when it, I it was a deeply, deeply satisfying moment when it finally happened in tech and people were just sort of thunderstruck by it. But I, but I knew, I knew it was coming. And, you know, you have to just be confident and, and trust in, in your knowingness about things like that because, and my designers now do, and they can see it with me and all of that, but there will be people in the room who clearly don't see it. Like they're not going to see it till it's fully realized. And you just have to um, have some faith and ignore your knowledge that they think you're an idiot because you do feel that, you, you know it, like you, you feel it in the room that they're like, this is never going to work. I don't know what you're talking about. Like you feel it because it's not there, you know? Yeah. When you're remounting a play like Steadfast and Soldier or Metamorphoses, are you trying to replicate a past production or do you intentionally continue to evolve them? And, and second question, is there anything new in this year's Steadfast and Soldier? Uh, there are tiny little things that are new, that are tweaks. Even when we kind of press opened on Thursday night, there I felt like someone discovered something about how to get a laugh. Um, when when a show is young, uh, it's it definitely evolves. And and like if we're picked up and taken to another city right away or the next year, I, it's not that I intend to change it, but I do figure certain things out that weren't figured out. And I do cut whole scenes or have a re rearranged some things or something like that. Once though, it's kind of been around a bit, then, then no, I mean, it's not an exciting or artistic sounding answer, but I really, I know what, I know what worked and I want to do that. And I also often, very often don't agree to do a show again. You know, even today, this is true. If I don't have, some key people who were in it originally, at least some people who were, who were in it, who carry the knowledge of it, you know, mm. because you know what, it, rebounding a show, all the excitement for me is in discovering and making it the first time. And, and I, I sometimes think like when people say, Oh, come remount this here. You know, what you're inviting me to do is go live in corporate temporary housing somewhere for four weeks. And it's like, if I were a painter, it'd be like, and now paint the same painting again, but perhaps was kind of not as good as materials, not the materials you first picked because you don't have your whole original cast or whatever. Although sometimes people come into shows and they're fantastic and bring whole new things. I don't want to, if anyone's listening to this, who is not an original cast member, I adore you and love you. And you brought a lot, <laughs> but you know, it's, it can be tedious and it's important that the cast feel the new cast members feel that they're um, that they're there and that they are contributing and that they are coming on discoveries themselves. So you kind of have to hide, hide and suppress your desire to be instructing all the time, you know, uh, and try and get them to find it on their own. And then sometimes eventually you just have to say, you know what, you have to pause three seconds between this word and that, and that's how you'll get the, you know, whatever. But you know, it doesn't have the original excitement of discovery to it at all. And it's that being present when things are figured out, that's so much fun. That's the mm -hmm. real, that's the real drug, you know? I love it. Uh, you've mentioned that the Steadfast Tin Soldier is one of your favorite productions. What is it about this piece that you love so much? 
you know, anything that has that bit of originality to it, you know, its manner is original. It's really funny and it's really funny and it's really moving and it's just so literally colorful and sparkly and surprising all the time. And because it has no words, you know, I think it, it goes, it more easily goes into the heart of the audience members. They're sort of unguarded somehow. You return to a kind of childlike state before you were fully verbal and you do have to like pick up on things only visually and try and figure out what's happening. There's just a great originality. And, but on the other hand, there's a great old fashionedness to it. It's super old fashioned. It's a theater lover's show. It has little footlights it has painted scenery. Most of the objects are two dimensional. It's like a toy theater and the little orchestra, you know, that they have little candles on their music stands and um, like in a very old fashioned, you know, like 18th century opera and they wear little periwigs and um, there's just so much craftiness in it and so much um, theater technique on the part of the performers. It's like all technique, you know what I mean? Like the timing and the, to be clear, you know, and to be funny and all it's um, amazing. And all the actors are so at the top of their game, but a discovery I'd never worked with him before. I'd worked with all of them before, except John Gregorio. Oh, and my original tin soldier, but John Gregorio is a genius and he's a kind of mimic miming sort of genius. He plays the fishmonger and the rat and the boy, the, the mean older brother. And a lot of what he does in the fishmonger scene where the fish is being purchased by the nursemaid, a scene which does not exist in the original text. I said to him, just fall in love with her and then oh, ask her out on a date. And all of this is done silently. And every night he does a different proposition to her for what the date is. It's improvised. I mean, he has a repertoire, but I'd say there's about 15 of them and we don't know what's going to show up. That's so and fun. I know, you know, a lot of my shows have a, hidden improvised section in them they do and this one it's improvised every night if you see the show more than once you'll you may see him do the same thing he ends with the same thing but the date is often different the stage manager always writes for me what the date date was a report i love it yeah. um so this is 101 stage adaptations and um mary zimmerman what are some of your favorite stage adaptations that others have created Look, um, something that was super, super influential on me when I was a young woman, I was probably 23, 24. I saw the Mahabharata in Paris. I saw the famous Peter Brook um, in the Bouffe du Nord, sitting on the hard seats. We only saw, um, it was me and Bruce Norris, the playwright, who was you know my, my boyfriend for 15 years, um, my partner for 15 years. We, we saw that together and... I kind of assume that's sort of life-changing for me. I'd never adapted anything before that. And I also like a lot of people my generation on, you know, Masterpiece Theater, great performances, whatever it was, it showed Nicholas Nickleby. And do you remember, you don't because you weren't born, um, it had the outrageous price of a $100 ticket in New York for oh the two parts. That was just, it was a record of all time. Wow. But 
I loved that so much. And, you know, honestly, we talked before about not identifying as a theater person and that I have professor on my passport. But if I had anything that was real, it would be reader. I'm an obsessive reader. I learned to read early and voraciously from childhood. And really, I'm just a and a reader who's so obsessive that she had to become a theater person to um, to, mani- to manifest, you know, what was happening in my head when I read and to, and to share that. So I, don't, I wasn't consciously like, oh, I'm going to imitate that with Nicholas Nickleby and with, with Mahabharata. But I clearly have been, you know, I clearly mm-hmm. have been imitating that. For so, sure. Yeah. How do you decide what you're going to work on next um, and, and you mentioned that you're not on people's list for, for directing new plays, uh, but do people pitch you ideas or, or are you just constantly pursuing your own interests? A couple times, I, a couple things have been suggested to me. White Snake by Bill Rausch at um, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, which turned out to be something I'm very proud. I lo- I'm very proud of my script for that show. I really am. And we went seven places with it, including China. Mm-hmm. And he suggested it to me. Um, the other was Candide, Rock Schulford, the Goodman suggested, and I did a new, you know, a new book for it. And, and that I could not be happier with either. I just adored it. And it was sort of my first musical and I just a- adored it. So I do have suggestions, but generally it's stuff I'm still mining my childhood or, I come across things and I think that decide um, is often the wrong verb to talk about when talking about artistic things, because it's, it's as though saying, how did you pick your lover or decide to fall in love with this person? It sort of happens before you know it. And I mean, then I, you know, I, I, I do obviously think, sort of evaluate, well, is this good for the theater or not? But on the other hand, I, Often it's not, and I still do it. I didn't mention when we were talking about challenging things was, you know, I've, I've, tw- I've done two separate shows based on Proust's Remembrance of Things Past, the single least dramatic work of literature ever written and, you know, impossible to do in a straight way. I had to do it in a kind of crooked slant way, you know, just vignettes from it in 11 Rooms of Proust, or I did a show called M. Proust, Mr. Proust, um, told through the bio- autobiography of his housekeeper. Um, you can't just try and adapt that story. There is no story. It's it's a work of fiction un- or art, unlike any anything anything else. Um, but yeah, I just I come across things in a in a strange you know happenstance way, or they are being mined from my childhood. Um, fairy tales, Arabian Nights, The Odyssey that's all from my, my own childhood. Hmm. You know? So um, are you working on a next project right now? And if so, can I be a part of it? <laughs> the thing I'm working, the big thing I'm working on now is um, an opera at the Met, which will be my fifth or sixth, which is kind of impossible to believe, uh, which will happen about exactly this time, about a year from now, I'll be completely terrified and opening that that opera it's not one I wrote or have anything to do with but obviously I have a lot to do with conceiving and you know the design for the production and so forth so that's the big thing I do want to you know I loved Tin Soldier so much that I want to sort of do something 
another sort of old fashioned thing like it, except with maybe the opposite take and that it's all sung or something like, like that, but with the same kind of, for all ages, old fashioned painted scenery, um, you know, that kind of thing. Ever since I did it, I've wanted to do it again <laughs> with some <laughs> other story. Um, Cause yeah. it's just, there's something about it. And it was high pressure for me going home and writing text every night. It was so much less pressure not having text to write every night, but, but having ideas to, I had to generate, but not having to actually write script. It was so pleasurable. So um, yeah, I don't have anything super, super specific. I, Leonardo right now is, it was at DC Shakes and it's going to San Diego to the Old Globe in January and it may go there's been some interest in other places. So I, I have that to occupy me very good <laughs> at the moment. Mary, my last question is, and this is appropriate because of the Greek things that you've done. If you found a magic lamp with Dionysus inside and he could grant you one theater wish, what would you wish for? Um, I mean, I would really, really, like to I mean there's so much but I really really would like to see the first performance of one of Shakespeare's of Hamlet or of Romeo and Juliet at the Globe I really really would be interested in that but there's other old it would be a backwards thing like that I would want to see some old technologies of the, th I love old theaters and old technologies and wing and drop sets and yeah. um, periactoids, these rotating triangular. I love old theater history. So it would be something like that. I think I'll go with you. We'll build a time machine and yes. we'll do that. Wouldn't that be, and you know, I often think of like, when I do these operas, everyone always talks about the, op you know, the composer's intention, but any person of the past, the brought forward, they'd just be so amazed at the lights. They wouldn't be able to get over it, the electricity, and they wouldn't be able to get over the fact that we're still doing their work. I think that they would be so moved by that. I don't think anyone thought they were writing for the ages in the way they were those greats, you know, that's for sure. And I think, I think in hundreds of years from now, people will be doing your work still too. <laughs> I don't know about that, but thank you. <laughs> Mary, this, is, this has been really fun thank you so much you've been so thank you generous with your time tell everybody where they can go see the steadfast and soldier so the steadfast and soldiers at the looking glass theater which is right downtown next to the big famous water tower shopping mall um it's running now through the holidays into early january i think january 8th and and during the holidays there's tons of matinees and stuff when the kids are out of school it's only an hour long and I really stand by it. I think it's delightful. I do. <laughs> Even though I made it, it's delightful. <laughs> and I will, I will stand by my statement that it was one of the top three theater experiences of my life. So everybody Thank go you. see it. Thanks. Something. I will have everything in the show notes, uh, ticket information and, and dates and things like that. So please check that out. Especially if you're in Chicago, go, go, go see this show. Mary Zimmerman, it's been a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of 101 Stage Adaptations. If you liked it, I hope you'll forward to a friend today. Sharing is caring, and word of mouth is still the best form of advertising. So I hope you'll share it with someone today. 101 Stage Adaptations is produced by me, Melissa Schmitz, with the help of Hello Podcast Media. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.